Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So last week we started Romans chapter 12. And if you remember, it's a major shift in the book of Romans because Paul is um, switching from theology, doctrine, how we're saved, to how we live out our Christianity. And so he begins in verse 1 with, Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And he talks about don't being conformed to the world. And so Paul starts out with this whole issue of we need to live holy lives that are not like the world, and we need to continually have our mind renewed. Okay, as he continues through this, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. Now, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, because that would not be good, but I want you to think about, do you know your spiritual gifts? Do you know what the spiritual gifts are? And are you using your gifts in the life of the church? So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're going to read Romans 12, 3 through 8. And the first thing we're going to look at tonight is um, the source of spiritual gifts, the source. So let's pick up in verse 3. And I want to just focus on verses 4, I mean 3, 4, and 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, Paul does a little subtle shift there in verse 3 and starts to address the issue of pride. What does he say there? Don't think of yourself more highly then you ought to think, but use sober judgment in how you're thinking. So Paul is going to address thinking. Remember, what did he just say back in verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Part of having your mind renewed means that you have a proper view of yourself when it comes to pride. Now, pride can manifest itself in Two ways of skewed or sinful thinking. Okay? This is the one I think we often think of, so this is the easy one to identify pride. First of all, when it comes to thinking, we can have an overestimation of our giftedness. So we're talking about spiritual gifts here. This is in the context of gifts. You can have an overestimation of your gifts. And what you can think is you can have this inflated view of yourselves and you can say, I've got all the gifts, or you can serve in areas where maybe you're not qualified to serve. And and the whole point of your spiritual gift is to draw attention to yourself. Look at me, look at my gifts, 
I'm overestimating myself. Um, I'm thinking more highly than I ought of myself when it comes to spiritual gifts. In the life of the church, I want people to look at me. Okay? Some people, you've probably known these people before. They think they know everything. They're good at everything. They can never be told they're wrong, and they're always drawing attention to themselves. And so Paul says, that's one way you can be prideful. Okay? But there's another way, and I think you can be just as guilty of this type of pride when it comes to spiritual gifts. You can have an underestimation of your spiritual gifts in that you don't think you have one or you don't think God's given you a spiritual gift or you don't serve. You, you downplay your gifts. You kind of sit on the sidelines and say, you know, what? somebody else is going to do it. I'm just going to be an innocent bystander in the life of the church and I'm not going to use my gifts and I'm just going to expect others to do the work. Now, the first type of pride is easy to see, right? Drawing attention to yourself. The second kind of pride is, well, I just, I'm not going to even use my spiritual gifts because other people will do that. You're, you're underestimating. Both of those are sinful. When you don't use your spiritual gifts, that's just as sinful as drawing attention to people and making it all about you and overthinking or, 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 or thinking highly of yourself. So what does Paul say there that we should do? He says, okay, in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but what should we do? To think with sober judgment. To have sober judgment. In other words, you are to be um, thinking about your giftedness in a way that is, that's healthy. Um, when you're sober, what does that mean? What's the opposite of sober? Drunk. Okay. Now, Paul here is not talking about getting drunk on alcohol. He's talking about getting drunk on yourself. <laughs> Do you know what an egoholic is? What's an alcoholic? Somebody that's addicted to alcohol. What's an egoholic? Someone that's addicted to their ego, okay? So he's saying, don't be an egoholic. So he's saying here, have sober judgment. Really think of yourself the way that you're supposed to think of yourself. Don't be so into yourself. Um, do nothing from selfish ambition, um, Philippians would tell us. So here's true Christian humility. You serve others. And you use your spiritual gifts in active ways to strengthen and encourage others in the life of the church. That's Christian. So if you want to be a humble, mature Christian, you humbly serve others using the gifts that God has given you. Not drawing attention to yourself. That's sinful. And not using your gifts is just as sinful. Okay, so Paul's taking you on both extremes here. You can serve in a way that draws attention to yourself or you can not serve at all. Both of those, Paul says, listen, you need to have sober judgment. You need to think about how God has made you. Now, notice what he says here. Who's he talking to? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Who's he talking to? Everyone among you. Okay. Is he talking to pastors here? Pastors, you're the only ones that have spiritual gifts. Elders, you're the only ones that have spiritual gifts. Who is he talking to? 
Everyone in the church, which means what? What's the assumption here? Everyone who has faith in Christ has a spiritual gift, at least one, or a gift mixed. Okay? So, we are continually having our minds renewed, the way Paul would tell us in verse 2, through Scripture saturation so that we can live a lifestyle of worship to God. How do we have our minds renewed? Well, one of the ways that you're going to have your mind renewed tonight is you're going to learn about spiritual gifts. And you're going to find out what the gifts are. And hopefully your mind will be changed to think, I need to use my gift. I need to discover my gift. And if I am using my gift in a way that's selfishly drawing attention to myself, I need to maybe change my way of thinking. Okay, so let me just put it this way. The use of spiritual gifts comes right on the tail of worship. So I could say it this way. It's not in your notes, but you worship God by using your gifts. It's an act of worship. Okay? So that's the bottom line there. Do you see your service or volunteerism or using of your spiritual gifts as an act of worship to the Lord? If not, then Paul would say your thinking's wrong. You need to have a change in your thinking about how this all works. Okay? So, Paul's going to talk about spiritual gifts. And he says there, which is kind of confusing, so we need to kind of talk about this at the end of verse 3. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God has assigned a measure of faith. Now, that can be kind of confusing. What, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that some Christians have been given more faith than other Christians? And so there's differing levels or tiers of Christians. So like those of you that are back row Baptists, you have a lower measure of faith. My wife's looking at me like, why are you looking at me like You have a lower level of faith versus these front row Baptists. They have a greater measure of faith faith and so there's the front row faith and there's the back row and then using the middle you guys have a middle measure of faith does that mean that there's super christians and there's just like some ho-hum christians and there's everything in between is that what paul's saying no No. okay good this cannot be his argument due to everything that he said and taught in romans up to this point I don't think here he's talking about faith in the sense of your faith in Christ or something that can be measured or divided up in portions. Because if, if, if that were true, it would nullify what he just said about pride because the back row Baptists could look at the front row Baptists and say, well, man, they, they've, got, they've got it together. And the front row Baptists look at the back row Baptists and say, you guys don't have it together and there would be pride. And that would take out what Paul's saying there. What I think Paul is saying here is this. God assigns a measure of faith. It's in the context of spiritual gifts. I think what Paul is saying here is, and this is a principle that we'll see in 1 Corinthians tonight, God sovereignly chooses which spiritual gifts we will have. We'll talk about that in a moment. You don't get to pick what gift God gives you. God picks it. Okay? Because look in verse 3. In verse 3, we just saw we have God assigning a measure of faith. And then down in verse 6, what do we have? 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. God assigning gifts through grace. So here's what I think Paul's saying in the context here about this whole measure of faith issue. I think what he's saying is that from first to last, God is the source of our spiritual gifts. He decides what gift or gift mix we're to receive, and He sovereignly chooses how we will use it. And then He grants us the grace and the faith to be able to exercise those gifts in the life of the church. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, you can only use your spiritual gifts because, number one, God has given you that gift. And number two, He gives you the grace to be able to live that, or use that gift. Okay, so I want us to go keep your finger in Romans chapter 12 and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is another place where Paul gives a listing of gifts. By the way, there's a little bit of controversy over this. Um, when Paul gives a list of gifts, does that mean those are the only gifts? Or is it more, it's not an exhaustive list, it's, it's more a representative list. Um, kind of a general, a general understanding of how gifts work in the life of the church. From 1 Corinthians, we learn a little bit more about how the gifts work. So let's look at verse 4. So 1 Corinthians um, 12, uh, 4 through 7. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Um, I want you to notice, just before we even start, you see the Trinity right there. Do you guys see the Trinity? In verse 4, 5, and 6, you've got the Spirit, the Lord, and God. It's in reverse order. Spirit, Jesus, the Father. So Paul is bringing the Trinity in that, but, but what Paul does here is he uses three interchangeable words to refer to the variety of spiritual gifts. Okay, so in verse 4, there are a variety of gifts. Okay, this is the word charismata. This is where you may have heard the word charismatic. The word charismata is just the word gifts. This is the actual gift itself. And then he says, there are a varieties of service. Okay, service is the activity or the service done through the use of the gift. Okay, so for example, if your gift is teaching, the gift is teaching, but how do you actually do it? You teach, okay? And then there's the activities, and there are a variety of activities. This is a, is a different Greek word. This is, it really, do you see that word energemata? Energy? It's the, it's the power that God gives us to do the gift. So here's the way Paul's saying it. You have a gift, you need to exercise that gift, and God's going to give you the power to exercise that gift. Okay? And it's not just God, it's who gives it to you. The Father, the Spirit, 
the Son. The, the Holy Trinity gives you the power to be able to operate within your gifts. But notice verse 7. What is the purpose of the gifts? Each believer is given some manifestation of the Spirit, which means that every single Christian has at least one spiritual gift. To, every, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So every single Christian, you, if you are a Christian and believer in Jesus, you have at least one spiritual gift. Why do you use that spiritual gift? It's for the common good. It's not to inflate your ego. It's not to draw attention to yourself. It's not to puff yourself up. It's to serve. It's to build up the church. It's to, it's to build up others for the common good. Okay, go down to verse 11. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So who gives you your spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit. How He determines you need it. So here's the bottom line again. The Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sovereignly have decided which gift you will have, and they've given it to you by their choice alone. Which means, practically, if you go to some type of church or some type of ministry where they give you certain steps to try to learn to receive all the gifts, or, or, or some pastor imparts a gift to you through some type of anointing, that's a violation of Scripture. Can I, as your pastor, give you a spiritual gift? Can you come up and me blow on you or wave my jacket on you and give you a spiritual gift? Benny Hinn thinks he can, or other people like that do that. Who gives you your gift? The Holy Spirit. Why does He give you the gift? For the common good. Does He give you the power to operate in that gift? Yes. Okay? So the source of spiritual gifts is God and God alone. He gives you those, those gifts. He gives you the grace. He decides which one you want to have, which means there should be no selfishness or competition. Like you shouldn't look at somebody else and say, man, I wish I had her gift. Well, the reason you don't have her gift is because God's giving you your gift. Use your gift. Don't be jealous of somebody else's gift. Okay? So that's the source. The source of spiritual gifts is God giving you those gifts, God giving you the power to live in those gifts. All right, let's talk about the purpose of spiritual gifts, and I kind of hinted to that a little bit. So um, let's go back to Romans chapter 12. You were in 1 Corinthians. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12. In both Romans right here in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to give this uh, metaphor, this teaching that he often gives about the body. And so in verse 4, back in Romans 12, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Okay, one body. Everybody here have one body? Okay. Everybody here have member, different members of your body? Okay. Different functions. What does your hand do? It waves or it writes or it drives. Does your, does your hand do what your nose does? Be really weird if you want to smell. I'm going to smell people with your hand, okay? <laughs> does your ear do what your eye does? Come a little closer. I've got to be able to see. 
you're, you're, you have different body parts that do different functions. And they're different functions, but what happens if one part of your body's not functioning? It's not, you're not healthy, you're not whole. Okay, so you can have a whole body with not everything working. Like I'm reminded of that scene from Monty Python where the, um, they're having the sword fight and he cuts his arm off and he's still fighting, cuts his other arm off and then he cuts his legs off and he's walking around and it's like he's just a stump there, you know, fighting. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But um, it's not good to have your arm chopped off and your legs chopped off. So what Paul is saying here is that we are mutually dependent upon one another, mutually dependent upon one another. And our fellowship and our love for one another is enhanced and matured when we use our spiritual gifts to serve one another. We need to understand this because we live in a culture that's very isolated, independent, rugged individualism. I can do it myself. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to bother anybody. And sometimes in the life of the church, we bring that to the life of the church, and we also say, I'm not going to do it because somebody else will do it. And then you got 10% doing 90% of the work because the other 90% are thinking somebody else is going to do it. And so Paul says, no, listen, we're all together as one body. We're mutually in fellowship with one another. And so the purpose of spiritual gifts is to grow the body into health. And so Paul talks in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, um, he's going to talk about not necessarily, some people think these are spiritual gifts. These are not actually spiritual gifts. These are spiritual offices or people that God gifts to the church in ministry leadership. Because these aren't gifts, these are people. Okay, so let's look at, look at what he said there. He gave the apostles. It's not a gift. It's a person. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip, the key word there, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and on the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul lists not specific spiritual gifts here, but actual leaders in the church who have been gifted to serve and to teach and to lead. Okay, so one of those roles there is the pastor slash teacher. Now, that's my role, the pastor hyphen teacher. Now, as a pastor teacher, what do I do? I pastor teach. I teach, I pastor, I shepherd. So it's a combination of two ideas. I lead spiritually and I teach you spiritually. So pastor teachers have to somehow have the gift of preaching and teaching and leading if they're going to do that. But my primary role there is to what? What does it say? My primary role as the pastor teacher is to equip, to equip the church to do works of service. Why? 
so that the entire body will grow into maturity, into obedience to God's mission. Go back and read that Ephesians 4 passage. One thing you will not see is the text does not say the pastor is to do all the work, but my job is to equip all of you to do the works of ministry. So what's the purpose of spiritual gifts? To serve one another, to build up the church, to make sure that we're mature, to make sure that we're healthy, to make sure that we're operating. My job is to equip and encourage you to use those gifts. If just one person or a small group of people are using their gifts, it's like a body where half your body parts aren't working. And so um, here's the ultimate question, very personal question. What happens when you don't use your spiritual gifts? If the purpose of using your spiritual gifts is to build up the church and you're not using your spiritual gifts, you may not consciously think this, and this may be an extreme way to say it, but you're not building up, but you're tearing down. You're not contributing to the common good, but selfishly consuming for your desires. You're not only stifling your own maturity, but the maturity and effectiveness of the entire church. So not only are you not maturing by not using your spiritual gifts, but you're not helping the entire church to mature. Now, at this point, you're probably frustrated with me. You've told me I got a spiritual gift. You told me I got to use it. You told me what the purpose is. I don't know what my gift is. Okay, Paul's going to give a list. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at the variety of spiritual gifts. In verse 4, Paul describes the reality in the life of the church. He says, we are all one body in Christ, but we do not have the same function. Interestingly, the word function there is the Greek word praxis, where we get the word practice or practical or work. So what he's saying there is, We all have different jobs or tasks or acts of work in the life of the church. Okay, so there's different jobs, different activities. And then look at verse 6. Having gifts that what? Differ. Differ. So everybody's got a job to do. And everybody's got a different gift to enable them to do that job. So the word differ there means there's a diversity or a variety of gifts in the life of the church that God has sovereignly given us so that we can serve others in love. Okay. Before we look at the gift mix list here in Romans 12, Peter talks about spiritual gifts also. Here come the youth. Um, it's exciting to see all these kids and youth walking through. Um, so Romans chapter 12 is where we have spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we have spiritual gifts. And Peter right here is where we have spiritual gifts. Peter's the least detailed, but I think maybe the most helpful. Okay, So let's read 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. And what Peter says is, as each one has received a gift, each one has received a gift, 
use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter gives two large categories of giftings in the life of the church. Okay, so instead of giving like a list of eight things or 12 things or whatever, Peter says there's two big categories. What's the first category? Speaking. If one speaks, he must speak the oracles of God. Now, when Peter there is talking about speaking, he's not just talking about normal conversation. This really encompasses preaching, teaching, any type of ministry in the life of the church where you're the one that's, that's speaking God's truth. Whether publicly, like myself as a pastor, and we'll get to this a bit later, or a growth group leader, or a women's Bible study, or a word of encouragement to somebody else. It's not just chatting for chat's sake. It's you are taking God's word and you're presenting it to other people, whether that's in a formal you know, context like this, or whether it's across from coffee. But you, you have the ability, God's given you the unique ability to communicate biblical truth to others. Speaking gifts. The second big, huge category he gives is serving. If anyone has the gift of serving, they're to serve it in the strength that God supplies. I would say this, percentage-wise, just from my experience, in the life of a church, more people have the serving gifts than the speaking gifts. But usually the speaking gifts are the ones that people see because they're the ones that are talking all the time, like the teachers and the preachers. But most of the life of the church would not exist without the serving gifts. That's usually the behind the scenes. I don't want to talk. I don't want to teach. But I, want, I do a lot of things behind the scenes. I'm serving. Um, and so notice that Peter there says that, again, when you serve or you speak and you use those gifts, it's in the strength that God generously supplies in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says there's two big categories. There's the speaking gifts, there's the serving gifts. Now, Paul here in Romans 12 is going to give us an actual list, and some of these will be speaking gifts, some of these will be serving gifts. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're just going to go step by step uh, through these seven gifts that Paul gives, and we're going to talk about each one of them. I'm going to do my best to explain them to you, and, um, and then we'll just we'll go from there, okay? Any questions before we, before we move on? And don't think that I'm not going to get to the practical thing at the end. So if you're thinking, well, I'll keep you hanging so that you pay attention. All right, so here we go. All right, using this framework of the two big speaking gifts and serving gifts, let's look at Paul's list of seven. The first he mentions is prophecy. You guys see it there? Verse 6, if prophecy in proportion to one's faith. Okay, let me explain the gift of prophecy the way I understand it. This is controversial. Some people will disagree with me. That's okay. You have the right to be wrong. We'll move forward. Okay, no, I'm just, I'm just, I am just joking. There's a difference. This is a secondary issue. But let me just tell you what I believe about this, and then I'll, I'll explain prophecy. Okay, I believe that prophecy 
the way it's understood in the Bible, was a temporary gift in the early church during the time that the New Testament was in the process of being written. So when they didn't have these books of the Bible, God raised up prophets who would receive spontaneous utterances from the Lord and they would be able to speak the truth in a, a church context. Um, this was not necessarily an explanation of God's word. It was more a direct word from the Lord. Okay? Now, notice I said it was temporary because what's in the process of being written? The, the scriptures. So once we have a written scripture, we really don't need prophets to give spontaneous words from the Lord because God's given us everything we need in the scriptures. Okay? So I believe it was, a, it was a temporary gift during that apostolic, during that New Testament time, because the Bible does speak of prophets, especially in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians. But I think that in, the, in that temporary process, while the New Testament wasn't quite finished, God did raise up prophets, like in the Old Testament, that said, Thus saith the Lord, and they, they would give prophecy. Okay, But now that we have a final authoritative Bible, and this is called the closed canon of Scripture. And you wonder why is it called a canon? Um, canon just means rule. A closed canon just means it's the final recognized books of the Bible that we don't add to. So there's no longer any need for the gift of a prophet in the sense of spontaneous utterances or direct revelation from God. So when you see somebody today go, they stand up and they say, the Lord told me in a dream, and thus saith the Lord, and they start spouting off something like they're getting it directly from the Lord. You may have to question what they're saying, because especially if it's in conflict with the written word of God, you know it's not from the Lord. But the writer of Hebrews gives us some, some interesting information here. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, long ago and at many times in many ways, okay, long ago, like back in the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Isaiah, Elijah. But in these last days, the time that Hebrews was written, which is one of the later books, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. What I think the writer of Hebrews is saying is, in the old times, God would speak through prophets, God would speak through dreams, God would speak in miraculous ways. But now that Jesus has come as the final word, and now that we have a written final word, we don't necessarily need prophets anymore to receive direct revelation from God because we have a written scripture. Okay? But notice what it says there. If prophecy in proportion to the faith, I think the ESV translates it a little differently than I think the original language does there because I think the, the, the ESV says in proportion to what our faith. It really means, let me just put it this way. I, I guess I'll, I'll read it the way I wrote it down. I don't know if it's exactly the way I want to word it though. The word proportion is where we get our word analogy of faith, which means ruler standard. In other words, the, if, if the gift of prophecy was direct revelation back in the day, it was still bound by the Old Testament scriptures and the apostles' teaching and could not go beyond faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
So what I'm saying is even if a prophet got spontaneous utterances during the time of Paul and that person stood up and spoke, what they said could not be in conflict with the Old Testament and could not be in conflict with what Jesus taught and could not be in conflict with what the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. So that person that stood up and gave spontaneous utterances was still bound by the faith. Because if not, they'd be a false prophet. Okay? Now, my personal opinion is that the absolute, like pure gift of prophecy where somebody receives a direct revelation from the Lord and speaks, thus saith the Lord, was a temporary gift. Let me say that I do think there's a correlation today as to what that gift could be. I think when we talk about the gift of prophecy today, I think it's the gift of preaching the written word of God. Okay, because prophecy has some type of applicable, powerful speaking to a congregation, urging them, motivating them, um, calling them to response. Okay, so what most pastors or preachers should have is some gifting to stand up and proclaim God's word with authority to the church. Okay. Is this a gift for everybody? This is usually limited to maybe pastors and elders and those who come each week and stand before the church and um, preach. Okay, so I think the gift of prophecy is the ability to powerfully preach God's word to a congregation that aims at the heart, aims at the will. Okay. Let me just ask you a question. What's the, and you may not think there's a difference, but I do. What's the difference between what I do on Sunday morning and what I do here? You may think there's... Okay, this is teaching, okay? Now, when I preach on Sunday morning, I, I involve teaching in my preaching, but preaching is more aimed at the heart, whereas teaching is more aimed at the head. Now, when you come on Sunday morning, you're going to get stuff aimed at your head, but my goal is not to have you leave with information on Sunday morning. My goal is to have you leave responding to the truth in some type of heartfelt way or commitment to where you're moved by the message. You may not know that that's what's going on on Sunday mornings. Now, you may feel that when you come out of here on, sun, on Wednesday nights, but mainly on Wednesday nights, you're probably going to be like, he gave us a lot of information. My head's full of stuff. So I believe, and I did a whole doctoral thesis on this, so I don't want to go into the details of it, but I believe there's a difference between preaching and teaching. Preaching is more authoritative, standing before people, aiming for the heart and the will. Teaching is more explanation of the text, aiming for information and for the mind. But in your preaching, you need to have teaching. But in teaching, I don't necessarily have to preach. You understand what I'm saying? Because sometimes when I'm in here, I'll say, okay, I'm going to start preaching. You're like, oh, I thought he was doing that. No, I was teaching. So, and, and here's the reason why, because look at the next gift. I mean, well, we'll get there in just a moment. The third gift. The next gift on the list is service. Service. 
if service in our serving. Now, this word is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to acts of service, especially giving financial or material assistance or benevolence. It really means using your hands in ministry, serving others with acts of service. Um, literally, the word means to wait on tables, to be like a waiter. You serve the food. You, um, I, I'm not going to pick on the ladies back there, but a lot of those ladies in the back row are serve us food a lot of times. Behind the scenes, they prepare the food, they serve the food, um, they're, they're serving us, they, they have the gift of service. Um, this was happening um, in the early church when some of the widows were getting neglected. And they, In Acts 6, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Same thing, to serve tables. So serving is um, the broadest of the gifts. Remember what Peter said of serving? It's that big category. Um, it's a fairly broad gift. It includes everything from serving behind the scenes to helping those in need to doing benevolence to just helping in any area where there's need. So, you don't do it out of duty. You do it out of joy, and you do it because the Lord gives you strength. I would say probably in the life of the church, serving is one of the ones that there's a lot of opportunities to serve. If you like using your hands, if you like being behind the scenes, if you like just helping in areas that need help, I'm going to pick on some people tonight, so don't. Like Nancy, for example, she serves in the summertime. I will drive up to the church parking lot, and she's killing weeds. She's out there with the weed killer killing the weeds in our parking lot. And I'm thankful for people like that because um, as pastor, I could go out there and kill the weeds. But I think as church, you'd probably want me to spend more of my time doing pastoral things. And out there, not that I'm above killing weeds, but that's something that, you know, not, that Nancy likes to do, and it, she's serving our church, and some of you probably never know that she's out there killing the weeds. So we have, um, during the summertime, we have the landscaping team that goes out and does, they, they make sure our sprinklers work it, and they cut the shrubs, and they mow the lawn. In the wintertime, we have the snow removal team. So like, you know, if it was like yesterday we showed up, um, they're out there shoveling the walks. And so, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to serve in the life of the church that you may not have thought of, just using your hands or your feet, or your cooking, or your serving, or however you want to do it. Okay, the third one is teaching. Teaching. Now, how is teaching different from preaching? Okay, I'm glad you asked, Pastor Sean, because I believe that there were those gifted in the early church different from the prophets, there, because Paul's writing to the original audience, remember, Mary said there's, there's at, the, at the time that Paul's writing in this transitional period, in this temporary period, there's those that receive direct revelation from God that are prophesying, but yet there's people that are teaching. So what are they teaching? Well, they're teaching the Old Testament scriptures. They had the unique ability to explain scriptural truth. Okay. 
Um, we already looked at that Ephesians 4.11 passage, but it talks about the pastor-teacher there. So, teaching is more geared towards the mind. It's more transfer of information. It's more explaining the Bible in a way that makes sense. And um, it's required of an elder. One of the qualifications of an elder is that he must be able to teach. Not necessarily preach, but he has to be able to teach. So all of our elders are qualified as elders because they can rightly handle God's word and they can teach it accurately. And sometimes they may be called upon to preach. They don't like to be called upon to preach and they don't feel gifted to preach, but they have to be able to teach. Okay? So Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, give us some instructions on how the gift of teaching is to work in the life of the church. So... Um, this is talking about an elder. Um, whoops, did I skip 1 Timothy 4, 6? Oh, it's on that same sheet. Okay, 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Teaching involves making sure that good doctrine is being taught, that people are being instructed in the fundamentals of the faith. Titus 1.9 is talking about an elder. He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So teaching involves two things. You need to be able to teach what is true, but you also need to be able to refute what is false. So you need to know what's true, but you also need to know what's false and be able to distinguish between those two. So teaching is more interactive. So there's probably more people in the church that have the gift of teaching than preaching. Um, you, and so we've got growth group leaders. We've got youth leaders. We've got children's. We've got men's, women's. We've got a lot of different teachers in the life of our church that God's given them that unique ability to explain the Bible in a way that makes sense to, to the class or to the group. Okay? All right, the fourth gift is exhortation or encouraging verse 8 to the one who exhorts in his exhortation okay this gift is related to preaching and teaching but it's a little bit different okay this involves the application of scriptural truth in practical ways for everyday living It also involves encouraging others to action and repentance and change, and it focuses on the heart and the will. Now, as Christians, we're all called to encourage one another. But some people have that spiritual gift to come alongside another person. Here's, the way I, here's what I look at as encouragement. That person knows exactly what to say at the right time, at the right situation, and they take the biblical truth and they apply it in a way that's like, now, that's like directly to the person. Like, I've got a word of encouragement for you. 
and they sit down and they share with you a word of encouragement that comes directly from the Bible, but it's what you needed to hear at that time. It was applicable and it may have gotten in your face. They may have rebuked you or they may have said, you need, you need to repent. Um, so it's not just like a, I'm a cheerleader on the side like, hey, do better. You know, encouraging is, is the word means to come alongside somebody, to get down in the trenches of their life. So if you've got the gift of exhortation, you know how to, you're not afraid to get dirty and get in somebody else's life and deal with their mess and talk with them and encourage them and confront them and take the biblical truths and apply it. So for example, like I can teach you all tonight some general principles, but you may sit across from another Christian at a restaurant or in their home or somewhere, and they may say to you, you know what? I see this in you, and you need to hear this. And they give you a word right there that's biblical, but it's, it's a word of encouragement from the Lord, from the word. And so some people just have that, that gifting. Okay? So, for example, Barnabas. What was Barnabas' nickname? Son of Encouragement. That was Barnabas' name, the son of encouragement. Why? Well, in Acts 4.36, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, the Levite, a native of Cyprus. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. So how did he practice encouragement? What was Paul's life like before he became a Christian? What was he? Bad. Okay, he was a persecutor of the church. He killed Christians. Okay, when he became a Christian, what do you think the church thought about Paul? <laughs> Don't know if we want that guy showing up. So what does Barnabas do? Barnabas builds a bridge and says, listen, we've got to welcome him into the life of our church. And so in Acts 11, 22-26, the report of this, Paul's conversion, Paul's salvation, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What did Barnabas do first? He exhorted the church to remain faithful to the Lord. And then he, because the church was afraid of Paul, he brought Paul, he encouraged Paul and he encouraged the church. So the gift of encouragement is more than just, hey, I, I'm, hey, do better, and I'm going to come alongside you, put my hand around your, you know, put my hand around you. It's more of, I'm going to invest the time needed. God gives me the special supernatural gifting to invest the time needed to walk alongside of you in life and to give practical application of spiritual truth to encourage you, and sometimes that may mean painful because I'm speaking the truth in love. Okay. So let me just kind of give you a summary statement here. Those with the gift of encouragement, they advocate, they counsel, they may teach, not necessarily in a formal way, they may rebuke, and it's almost always very specific to the person or the occasion with very practical application that moves towards repentance and life change. Okay, the fifth gift is 
giving or contributing? All right. The one who contributes in generosity. Now, every Christian is called to give <laughs> financially to the life of the church. We're called to practice financial stewardship. We're called to give of our tithes and offerings. This is not like, so don't say this. Well, I didn't give an offering this past month because I don't have the spiritual gift of giving. You can't plead that. That's like saying, I didn't pray last week because I don't have the spiritual gift of prayer. I didn't share the gospel last week because I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Or I didn't sing last week in church because I don't have the spiritual gift of singing. I didn't listen to the sermon last week because I don't have the spiritual gift of listening. I mean, you can't plead that. Okay, so what is this? Um, it's a special gift, a special grace given to people who like to give financially behind the scenes. Um, God has blessed um, some people with greater financial stability, greater financial resources. And this, the spiritual gift of giving means that you find it a joy to give above and beyond of your resources, of your money, to encourage, to help others. Um, Ephesians 4.28. Uh, did I skip it? Whoops. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Now, that command is for all of us. We need to all share with those who are in need. But those with the spiritual gift of, of giving or contributing, do it above and beyond. Um, they're always looking for opportunities to give. They're looking for opportunities to help financially. These are the kind of people that come to me when the youth are going to camp, and I don't know if they have the spiritual gift or not, but I'm just giving you an example. These are the kind of people who come to me and say, I want to scholarship a kid to camp. Who needs help this year? Don't tell them I gave the money, but I want to, I want to scholarship a kid. Or um, I want to help this family at Christmas, but don't, don't tell anybody. Who, who can I help? They want to help financially, but they don't really want anybody to know. Okay? So... Oftentimes, it's, it's, it's relegated to finances, but not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, financial giving, although that's primarily what it is. First uh, Thessalonians 2.8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also we want to share our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. So the idea of giving is not just restricted to financial resources, but it can mean giving of your time and your energies. Basically, you're generous with yourself. You're generous with your resources. You're generous with your time. You have an eye towards blessing others, primarily financially. You're not stingy. Um, you're, you're a generous person. You're sacrificial. Um, like the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, that gave to the Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was going through a struggling period, uh, a financial struggle. And Paul asks the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth to give an offering. And the Philippians gave, were the, probably the poorest church and they gave the most. Corinth, which is probably the richest church, didn't hardly give anything. And so Paul kind of says, listen, Corinth, Philippians and Thessalonians, they're, they're outshining you on giving. And so when he's writing in 2 Corinthians, this is what he's saying. Um, 
I keep advancing these too fast. We want to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. That would be Thessalonica and Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They were extremely a poverty-stricken church, but they, they gave extravagantly above and beyond. And then 2 Corinthians 9.11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So generosity in giving financially, usually behind the scenes, you're looking for opportunities to bless others, usually materially or financially. All right, the sixth one, the one who leads with zeal, leading. I believe this is especially a gifting given to elders in the church. I don't have time. <laughs> I, did, I did highlight that for you, Trina. I didn't finish my thought. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I don't have time to go into. I don't have time. <laughs> Why is that on? <laughs> I know what I was going to say. I don't have time to go into all of this because I wrote my doctoral thesis on it and you don't want to hear all that. So um, I don't have time to tell you about leading, but I'm going to tell it to you. I'll give you just a brief, a brief, what, what, what this really means. Yeah. The, the word itself, the word to lead, prohistemi, it means to stand before or to stand in front of others. Literally, to stand in front. So think about what a pastor does. What does a pastor do every Sunday? He stands in front of the people with God's authority. But as a pastor, what else do we do? Like we literally stand before you and preach, but we also should be what? What does a leader do? He stands in front as people follow, or she stands in front as people follow. So, so literally, it means to be like a trailblazer, to lead, to cast vision, although I don't necessarily like that term, um, to, 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 to lead God's people towards what God wants them to do. Um, this person has a special gifting to be able to rally the troops, to communicate clear purpose, and to have people um, follow them. And then notice what it says there, too, that whoever leads do it with zeal. It's not just a duty, but that you do it with a desire, a passion to lead with faithfulness and intensity. First um, Thessalonians 5.12 talks about leaders. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Over you in the Lord is the same word for leading. Those who lead you. Respect those who lead you. And then in 1 Timothy 5.17, probably the classic passage there about the role of elders, let the elders who should be lead, it's the same Greek word there, who lead well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay. Almost always when this term prohistemi is used in the New Testament, it's almost always tied to an elder. But it doesn't mean that others can't be gifted in that area of leading. Yes, elders and pastors need to be gifted in leading, but that doesn't mean it's restricted to elders and pastors. Um, I think if you're in ministry leadership, you have that gift to lead whatever ministry it is or whatever 
the point is servant leadership. You're a servant leader. You're not overbearing. You're not harsh. Um, it's leadership that not only gives help and care and encouragement, but also leads by example and with passion. You have the supernatural ability to gather others around you for a common purpose, and you look around and people are following you. If you're, you're not a leader if people aren't following you. If you're walking and you turn around and nobody's behind you, you're just taking a walk. Okay? <laughs> no, you're not leading anybody. So if, you're a, if you have the gift of leadership, that means people are following your, your lead. They're, they're involved in your ministry. They, they, they look to you for, for, that, um, for that wisdom. Okay, the seventh here is acts of mercy. Acts of mercy. Now, obviously, we are called, all called to be merciful. We're called to be empathetic. We're called to care for the needs of the suffering. But again, since this is a spiritual gift, it's an extra measure or an extra power or an extra grace to be able to help the sick, help the suffering, help the hurting in very practical ways. And you do it with cheerfulness. Sometimes, sometimes people do acts of mercy because they absolutely have to, and they may not like it. Like caring for an aged parent, or um, you do it because you have to. But I think the person with the gift of mercy, they're always cheerful about it. God gives them that ability to to take care of people, to take care of the needs of people. You're never complaining. You just have that extra grace to be able to really take care of hurting people. Um, Paul says in Acts 20, 35, In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus who himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. So this is a representative list. Um, I've just briefly explained these. And remember what Paul said, you need to have your mind changed. So at this point, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, maybe one of these gifts fits me. So let me not leave you hanging tonight. And let me give you seven suggestions on how you discover your spiritual gifts. And before you ask, let me tell you what I think of spiritual gift inventories. I do not like them. And then you're like, what's a spiritual gift inventory? Um, a spiritual gift inventory is a man-made test that you take that's got multiple choice questions that you fill in the little bubbles. And then at the end, it scores you and tells you what your spiritual gift is. Now, that may or may not be true. It may have been how you felt when you answered the questions. It may have been how the questions have been asked. Um, it's helpful to kind of see if where close you are. Um, but let me give you seven that I think are maybe a little bit better than that, okay? You ready? Here's number one. Study the spiritual gifts described in the scriptures. Go back and look over these lists. Spend time looking at them, okay? So just study them. Study what the Bible says about the spiritual gifts. Then number two, spend time in prayer 
asking God to show you your motives. That's important. Why do you think you have this gift? What's your motive? To illuminate your mind to the scriptures, to reveal what gift he may have sovereignly given you. There's nothing wrong with asking God, please show me what my spiritual gift is. I want to know God. And I want to have pure motives. I don't want to do it selfishly. I don't want to draw attention to myself. I want to know what my gift is. Please show me. Okay. Then third, ask yourself, what do I like to do? Nancy said, I like, I like killing weeds. Okay. So what do I like to, what do I like to do? What, what energizes me? What interest do I have? What, what do I like to do? Because usually your spiritual gift is not going to be a drudgery to you. It's going to be combined with something that you like to do. Okay. Then this, this, the fourth thing is ask, what am I good at? Now, spiritual gifts are different than talents, but I think they, the human person is so complex that I think sometimes they tie together. It's a spiritual gift, not a natural talent. So God gives it to you, but oftentimes that can be confirmed by looking at what you're good at. Okay, and here's an important one. Number five, always be looking for opportunities to serve in the life of the church and then jump in. And you will often discover your giftedness in the serving. Don't wait to discover your gift and never serve. Discover your gift while you serve. I want to know what my spiritual gift is. I want to know what my spiritual gift is. What's my spiritual gift? There's like all these opportunities going on in front of you in the church. What's my spiritual gift, God? Well, maybe you see a need and you jump in. Or there's a need over here and you jump in. And as you're serving, you begin to discover what your gift is. Okay? And then number six, if you are serving and you are active, look for evidence of confirmation and blessing. Do you see evidence of God blessing the ministry? Are you seeing fruit? Are you finding fulfillment instead of frustration? In other words, is it a good fit? Like if, it's, if nobody's showing up and you're frustrated and you're pulling your hair out and nobody's giving you confirmation, that's probably not your spiritual gift. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just may not mean it's your spiritual gift. And then... Seek the wisdom of other Christians. Where do they see your giftedness? I've had people come to me over the years and say, Pastor Sean, what do you think my spiritual gift is? Now, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet where I can look and say, your spiritual gift is, but I can say, you know what, based upon what I know about the gifts, based upon how I know you, based upon how I've seen you operate in the life of church, this is what I think it might be. But that's not the gospel truth, but take it with a grain of salt that as your pastor, I'm seeing this in you. That may not be it, but God may speak through others to give you wisdom. Now, my dad, who spent over 40 years in ministry, um, gives this principle about spiritual gifts, and he calls it the spaghetti principle. We had spaghetti tonight for dinner, and how do you know spaghetti's done? You throw it against the wall and it sticks. Or you throw it against the ceiling and it sticks. Not in our house. We have the timer, and we know this, we've cooked it so long it takes like 13 minutes. on our thing. So, But in the old days, you throw it against the wall and it sticks. And so what he would say is, Sometimes you have to try different servings and, and get involved in life at church until it finally sticks. But if you never throw it against the wall, you're never going to discover it. Better to risk and get involved and serve 
and through that discover your gifts than to sit on the sidelines and not do anything. Here's the frustrating thing about the Bible. Okay? Here's the frustrating thing about spiritual gifts in the Bible. Both Paul and Peter nowhere in Scripture give us any information on how to discover our gifts. They make the assumption that you already know you have one and you're to be a good steward of this and to use it generously and actively. They don't say, go discover your spiritual gifts. They just said, you got a gift, use it. And they give you a list. They don't tell you how. So part of this is just wisdom as a pastor over the years of of how to help people discover that. But um, a lot of people don't even know they have a spiritual gift. They never thought about using their gift. Maybe they thought, I could never teach. Well, that's one of seven. Or I could never do that. Well, maybe you're not called to do that because that's not where you gift. So look around the life of the church and just say, you know, what are some areas in the life of the church that I could contribute? How can I help? And if you come to us and say, how can I help? We'll find a place for you to help, to work, to serve. I don't like to use work, to serve with the grace that God gives you. So I know that's a lot of information tonight on spiritual gifts, and we've got a, a lot of time. We've got like 15 minutes left. So do you guys have questions on spiritual gifts? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, Shauna. Do you get spiritual gifts throughout your life, or are you stuck with one and that's it? Yeah. Let me give you two answers to that. One, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I, I, would, I would say it's not... I would agree that... You, the Bible doesn't answer the question, but I would say if the Holy Spirit sovereignly apportions the gifts, then He has the right to take away a gift and give you a new one. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yes, it could be possible that you have a different gift mix throughout your life because the Holy Spirit's sovereignly in charge of that. Number two, I think it depends on the church or the season of the church. For example, you, if you, like, let's say 20 years ago, you served in another church and you used a gifting 20 years ago, but now you're in a different church, you're in our church, and there's different needs, God may say, you know what, that's what I needed you 20 years ago to do in that church, but right now in this church, this is what I need you to do because of the need of the church, and so I'm giving you the gift for now. And it may be once that ministry's up and done, God, I mean, so the point is, it's not like you're stuck with it. The point is God gives it to you the way He sees fit, He knows how the church needs to operate, and He will gift you to do what's best for that church. And so the Bible doesn't say it, but I think if God's sovereign over it, He can change it, He can do whatever He needs to do. Does does that make sense, Shauna? And and another question probably some people ask is, do I have more than one gift? Yes, but not necessarily. God may give you one gift, or God may give you two, or God may give you a mix of gifts. Just depends on him doing that. I've got three, I think. I think I've got preaching, teaching, and leading. But that makes sense because I'm a pastor. If I didn't have those three, you'd probably be like, oh, I don't want to listen to him. I don't want to follow him. I don't want... <laughs> so I wouldn't be your pastor anymore. But um, So you at least have one, maybe two. But again, the Holy Spirit's the one that gives those to you. Um, and he knows what this... He, the Holy Spirit knows what Emmanuel Baptist Church needs. 
and you're here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So the fact that you're here means that you need to be using your gifts here because this is where God's placed you and He knows what this church needs. So you're not here by accident just to kind of sit on the sidelines and say, okay, I'm here. You're here because the Holy Spirit knows you need to be here to fill a void that this church needs. Because think about it, there may be some ministries this church hasn't even begun to do that we've never done because somebody has not stepped up to the plate to follow the leading of the Lord in their gift. And we may be starting a new ministry based upon a gift that somebody has that didn't have it before. I don't know what that would be, but I'm just saying. Other questions about spiritual gifts? Were you stronger in one more than the other? And through your experience, have you felt like you've grown yeah. in one? Yeah, that's good. that's a good question. Have I grown? Yeah, I mean, ever since I've been in high school, I've been, I've been very good at teaching. I've been able to understand the scriptures. I, I was teaching middle school. I was basically teaching the middle school, the middle school group as a high schooler. So I've, I've always been kind of comfortable in teaching. Um, one thing that I've definitely grown in is in pastoral, pastoral um, care, learning how to counsel. Did you have someone help? Yes, I did. I did have some. I did. I did have someone mentor me. My, the pastor I first served under um, for four years mentored me and helped shape me and took me under his wing and, and kind of helped foster that. Now, one area that I don't like but I've grown in but I don't think I'm very good at but some people think I am but I don't like it is administration. I don't like details. I don't like organizing Don thinks I'm good at it, but I don't. That's one part of like, that's one part of Trina knows. If Sherry, if Sherry were not at this church, it would not function, okay? Because Sherry is our Sherry is our kind of office manager, financial, and she's like detail oriented. And um, yeah, I don't know what we would do without people like that. So, but I've had to learn. So, I think you learn to grow in your gifts. I think people can mentor you in those giftings. Um, I think there's always room for improvement and growing in, in that. So that's, that's a good question. I think you're always going to be dominant on one. One's always going to dominate. You're always going to shine in one. And other people will definitely see that. I think in full-time pastoral ministry, I'm not saying this is an absolute rule, I think you almost need to have, if not spiritual gifting, you need to have a lot more ability to do things by the nature of the job. And so I think maybe the Holy Spirit gives pastors and leaders maybe a, an extra measure of an extra measure of, of grace because of the nature of the job. Does that make sense? Not that we're any better. It's just we may need more gifting to be able to do what we're called to do. Anybody else? Back to the Old Testament with the prophets. Yes. Well, in the Old Testament, they, the prophets would often come saying, Thus saith the Lord. And it was often predictive of what would happen. And if it didn't come true, um, or it went against God's law, 
So, for example, um, I think it's in I think it's in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says these prophets are coming and they're they're preaching peace, peace. Israelites, you don't need to repent. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. You you don't need to worry about what you're doing. It's okay with God. And God's like, I didn't send those prophets. Those are false prophets because they're telling you peace, peace when there is no peace because you're living in clear violation of God's word. So the prophets came along after God gave his law. So Moses gave the law at Sinai, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have the written law, the book of the law. The prophets came and they would always tie back to Israel breaking that law. So if a prophet came and said something that was in violation of that Old Testament law or something that was off, then you could measure it as a false teaching because it didn't comply with what God had already given in His law. Same thing with today. If a pastor stands up and preaches something that's not in, according to the Word, everybody has, a, everybody has the same standard where you can all look in your Bible and say, that's not right. So even back in the Old Testament, they can look at the book of law and say, that's not right. But if you're persuasive and you're winsome and you're charismatic and you can talk people, you know, then maybe people will want to have their itching ears listen to you. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah. Like, they prophesize over many different things and many Well, God sent different prophets to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom, and they, and they had limited time. And it was always when a king, usually God would send a prophet when a king was leading the nation into sin against the covenant. And the prophet would go say, you're breaking the covenant, you need to come back. If you don't, usually I'm going to send another nation to come and take you over, or this is what's going to happen. Um, so, for example, like Jeremiah prophesied the um, Babylonian captivity, and it happened. So there's like an immediate... Yeah, your question is, how did the people at the time know that the person was a true prophet? Well, Deuteronomy, there's this thing in Deuteronomy, there's one of the laws, if a prophet preaches or predicts the future and it doesn't come true, that person is a false prophet and needs to be stoned. Now, I don't know the time frame about, like, you know, it's easy to say, 400 years from now, after I'm let long gone, this is going to happen. Okay? It's different to say, you know, in three years, there's going to be a famine in the land. In three years, there was a famine. Okay? So it's probably more compressed time than standing up and saying, but then, you know, there were those prophets that prophesied about the Messiah that obviously didn't come true until years later. But that was more of a future prediction of Christ, not an immediate judgment on the people of what was going to happen. Uh, yeah, be very wary of people that give vague prophecies. The Lord's got a plan for you. He's got a great plan for you. I just know He's got a great future for you. Okay, what is that future? I don't know what that future is, but God's got a great... You know what I'm saying? Like, well, anybody can stand up and say, God's got a great future for you. God's got a great plan for you. Um, you know, and, and that, that future involves sowing into my ministry. So 1-800-BLESS-ME, you know, give me your 50 bucks, and, and I will definitely know God's got a great future for you because I'm getting rich off of it, and I'm going to leave and go get on my jet and fly off to my next ministry crusade. <laughs> just, I mean, that's true. That's the way people do stuff. All right, any other questions on spiritual gifts? All right, next week, guys, we're going to get into, and gals, we're going to get into very practical. If you look at your, in your Bible here, it marks of a true Christian, 
uh, we're just going to talk about what, what does it look like to practically live out your Christianity in, in relational issues? One, like, how do we live together as a church? So remember what Paul said. He started Romans 12 with having our minds renewed, living spiritual lives of worship. And then it's interesting, he starts with spiritual gifts and says, okay, here's how you live a life of worship. You use your spiritual gifts in the life of the church. And then he's going to say, okay, also how you live a life of worship is how you relate to one another how you treat one another, how we live together in relationships as Christians. Um, what, what, what does that look like? With the main focus being on loving one another. Okay? So that's where we're going to go next week. All right, you guys, I think we're, uh, we're close enough to being done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I'm glad that we were able to look at spiritual gifts. Lord, I pray that everyone that's here tonight would just um, explore these, discover them, uh, think about it. Lord, serve in the life of our church. Uh, you would empower them. And Lord, if they have questions, they would come and ask. But Lord, we just really want to see our church being um, lively, healthy, where everyone's serving in their area of giftedness. And Lord, we know that you give us the grace and the power to do that. And so uh, just thank you for that. And we ask this in Jesus' name.